John chapter 5, and we're going to take a moment here this morning to look through just the first uh, few verses here, this first moment that happens in John chapter 5, in what I've uh, entitled Healing for the Unlovable. I don't know why I keep skipping back to that, I might have to, all right, all right. Healing for the unlovable. John's theme, and we've seen this as we've gone through and as we've thought about the, the gospel and made our way through the gospel, that John's purpose here and his theme was found in chapter 20, verse 31, that uh, these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life in his name. So we've been seeing him express that throughout this this gospel this is a truth this idea that that he wants us to believe that jesus is the christ the son of god that we can have life in his name this is a truth which causes conflict and can cause problems it is one of the most amazing truths of all time but clearly it has people who don't don't believe that now in the gospel of john so far we have seen Uh, not so much of this conflict, this tension that's been going through. He has presented us with a few minor tensions and some irritations that have happened between Jesus and uh, and the others, but but not a lot of major irritations. He's shown us here some of the amazing power that Jesus has to transform lives and to change lives. Many have believed in Jesus through the preaching of John the Baptist, We've seen Jesus gathering together his disciples and and making a a core group here. Chapter 3, we saw him talk to Nicodemus. And although Nicodemus is yet to be saved, as far as we can tell, he's certainly very favorable and he, he moves from there toward a belief in Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, we saw uh, Jesus speak to a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman who believed in Jesus and then turned the town around as Jesus made great influence in the town of Sychar there. Then last week, as we looked at the end of chapter 4, we saw a nobleman whose son was dying, and in the result of Jesus healing this man's son, he and his family believe in Jesus Christ and find salvation. Now, while John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and the savior of men, he's, he's not trying to deceive us. He's not trying to paint an, a rosy picture of what the gospel is and who Jesus is, as if everything is always, always good and that everyone we present the gospel to is going to, to believe and be transformed and convicted by, by Jesus. Today we see a very different reaction to Jesus than much of what we've seen in the gospel of John shows us that not not everyone is going to embrace Jesus with joy. Not everyone is going to find in him what so many of us have found. Not even when God does wonderful things. What the result of, as we will read here in just one moment, the result of this is, well, it's irritating, but it's also tragic. So let's read through John chapter 5. Would you read through the first 16 verses? And then take some thoughts and lessons from here. John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. 
And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep gate market, a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel went down at certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Continuing in verse 5. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity, thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day, it is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, he that made me whole, the same said unto me, take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, what man is that which saith unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come here to your word this morning, we ask for your encouragement. We ask for open eyes and understanding. We pray that we would learn, that we would grow, that our hearts would be brought even more into line with yours as we continue to understand who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's a short statement at the end of verse 9 that John puts in for us as a, a determining moment. It says, and on that day, same day, was the Sabbath. That statement of John about this being a Sabbath isn't just a throwaway statement. It isn't just a time marker here for us to know what's going on. That's an important note that he puts in there. It's an important note because it's the fact that Jesus does this on the Sabbath, which changes everything. Verse 16 tells us that. And therefore, because what he did on the Sabbath, the Jews persecute Jesus, sought to persecute Jesus and slay him because he'd done it on the Sabbath. So that's a key moment here. And this is, this is one of those moments where this is perhaps the key moment from this time on, the attitude of Israel and particularly the Jewish leaders turn. Up until this point, he's had a fairly favorable response. Yes, some issues here and there and some confrontations with the leaders, but nothing of, of dire significance. At this point, this is when it starts to turn, and this is the moment when they think this is a man we need to get rid of. Everything starts to change, and you'll see that come through as John progresses as well. It becomes more uh, irritating, more aggressive on the part of the Jews. So let's, let's consider what it is that brings this all about and sets the course for the rest of Jesus' ministry here in what takes place with this man. 
we begin by looking firstly at uh, what I am calling an unlovable man. Describing him as an unlovable man, and I think you'll see why. The situation is this. We're told in verse 1 that it's the feast time. We're not sure what feast it is. John doesn't make that clear, uh, one of the feasts. But there's a time of celebration and worship. Uh, one of the, the major feasts, it seems, which would require or call the men to come back to Jerusalem to worship. And so Jesus is there. He is back and he's there to worship. And, and at this time, you know, as the people are in, Israel, in Jerusalem and they're there for a feast, their minds and their attitudes should be focused on things that are good and praiseworthy and wonderful. And their, their attitudes should be fixed toward God and his Redeemer to come. Jesus is there and he's gathered with the people and he's gathered there to praise and to worship and to offer the sacrifices that are necessary and to show the example of what it is to worship and honor God in unity. There's one thing we see about Jesus is that he held the corporate worship of the people in high regard. Whenever there was opportunity to be in the synagogue or the temples or to worship or to spend time in these sacrifices and these feasts, he was there. And it's at this time of a feast where Jesus comes across this pool, a man, this unlovable man in this pool, a pool of he healing. It takes place, we're told here, at a place called the Pool of Bethesda. There is little debate nowadays about the, this, this place archaeologically. They found it, and although for many years it was uh, thought, well, there's no place like this that has five porches, this can't be true, when they discovered it, they found out, indeed, it looked exactly as is described here. So there's little doubt about where this is or what this, this place looked like. There is some debate here, and we'll see in just a moment, on some of the, the issues surrounding it. It's uncertain, but it may have been very much like the Pool of Siloam, which was what's called a mikvah, or a pool of cleansing. So before they would go in to offer their sacrifices or worship, they would wash themselves in... Uh, in a ceremonial wash so that they could be purified to, to worship and to offer their sacrifices. And that may explain why Jesus is there at this time before he goes to the temple. There was some superstition that grew up around it. This pool had a, uh, or was fed by an underground stream uh, which tends to bubble up at times. Uh, it still does as I uh, understand it. And so there was some superstition which then started to grow around this. Some believe that an angel came to stir up the waters there to bring healing. I don't know, maybe you're a, a fan or you watch the, the show The Chosen, the story about Jesus. The Chosen described this or, or they went in and said uh, that the, the pool here had some uh, connection to pagan ceremonies. Uh, and that's that was true later on the writers of the chosen admit they took that in because it made a more interesting story but at this point when Jesus is there the pagan connection doesn't seem to have any connection here or any uh, part in the superstition I said on Wednesday that this is a little bit of a tricky passage and here's where the tricky bit comes because some of you as you have read this may have noted that from the last half of verse 3 and verse 4, it's either missing in your Bible, in brackets, or has a footnote. And the footnote or the brackets that are there or that's missing 
suggest that this is not in some of the manuscripts. The most King James Bibles probably don't have a footnote. Some of them do, not all of them do. But in a group like this, I can't ignore that. I can't because some of you will look through and go, well, what's that footnote about? Or why did he read that? And there's two verses there that I don't have. And then he didn't explain it. And we need to, we need to address this to make sure we, we understand. We can't just ignore it or pass it off and say, well, because it's in this Bible, it's true. And because it's not in these manuscripts, it's not true. And just brush it off as if it doesn't matter. Um, these things do matter. And they matter because this issue has divided and caused confusion amongst Christians for, for quite some time. Not just this passage, but many. And these sorts of issues are often used to cause people to doubt the word of God. If you see what's here, if it's in, is it in, is it not in, and who is, is right. So we need to talk about this just shortly. I'm only going to briefly address it here this morning because I want us to get to the main topic. But Wednesday when I send out the, the update, there will be a link to um, an article I'll write which will have more detail uh, about that and we can talk further about it later. The question is why is this an issue? Why is this an issue here and does it, more importantly, does it affect the reliability of your Bible no matter what one you have right now? Does it affect the reliability of the Bible you have in your hands? If there's anything I want you to understand this morning it is this, you can be absolutely assured you can trust your Bible. You can trust your Bible. Whether it has this in it or not, your Bible can be trusted. You can trust the truth that it says. The very fact that we have these issues, where we have portions of Scripture which uh, may differ from manuscript, doesn't uh, cause us to doubt, but in fact it shows us how seriously Bible translation is taken how important it is to think through these, these things, how rigorously the evidence is studied. Now, this issue where we come along and read things and we find perhaps verses or words missing, this is not an issue just with modern translations. The King James did the exact same thing when they translated theirs. If you read a Tyndale Bible, which I think about 80% of the King James is based on, and then you read a King James Bible, you would find there is a whole list of verses they took out in translating because for them the evidence didn't suggest it should be there. So this is not a new issue. This is something that translators and Bible scholars have been doing for centuries because it is our efforts to make sure that we have it as accurately as we possibly can. This is part, the work of Bible translation is part of God's work of preservation. It's how we know we have God's word. So what happened here? The textual evidence that we have suggests that a scribe, when copying down this passage, put in a footnote. In fact, his little scribe, his little mark, is noted on very many texts that we have. And he's put a little mark in there, and in the margins has written this here, which we have at the end of verse 3 and verse 4. And that stayed in there. That little mark with the footnote stayed in there for a long time until it seems another scribe inserted it into the text, thinking that's 
must obviously need to be in there. And so it got inserted into the text. Now, in or out doesn't matter. It doesn't change this text. It doesn't change the emphasis of this text, whether it's in or whether it's out. In fact, in the whole totality of scripture and everything we have in manuscript evidence, there is only a very, very small percentage, less than 5% of all the manuscripts where there is difference. And not one of those affects a doctrine. You can be confident that what you have in your hands is the word of God. Now, I will give you my personal opinion on this, and you can differ with me, and that's okay. Personally, I think in my studies, the evidence suggests exclusion. So I think they don't belong here. If you want them to be in there, that's not going to change anything for me. It doesn't change the, the focus of the passage. Why do I think that? I think that because it's very unusual to the rest of John's writing. It doesn't fit with his style through the rest of the book and how he writes, even some of the words. But also, the detail that it adds distracts us from the focus of what John was trying to write in this passage. Nevertheless, whether in or out, the passage remains the same. The focus remains the same. Now, no matter what explanation we come to, whether we think uh, an angel came down and did it, whether we think uh, by the, the superstitions that came along, or, or whether we believe it was just the bubbling of the water and the minerals that came up which brought some healing and refreshment to the bones, no matter how we think this happened or, or how this came to be, what we do know is this. This pool is crowded with desperate people looking for anything to give them hope. They just want hope and healing. And perhaps Jesus is on the way to the temple as he walks through here. As he walks through this, this pool, this area of the pool, he finds this distressed man. Jesus sees this man, we're told, and he approaches him. He picks out of everybody in there, and we know it was crowded. It tells us it was crowded, and it was very often crowded. But out of all the people in there, Jesus picks the most miserable man of the lot. And he is a miserable man. Nothing makes him more deserving than others. He's been there a long time. We're told he's been there for 38 years. If you've been in this state for 38 years where you can't walk, and you've been at this place for 38 years trying to find some sort of relief from your pain. And after 38 years, you're still there. It's probably just habit. You have probably lost hope. Perhaps he lays there every day resigned to the fact that this is his lot in life. He's going to be like this forever. There is no hope for him. This guy, I'll be honest with you, is irritating. He's not a likable man. And you see that as you, you go through. In, in verse 6, it, it says, Jesus says, when Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, wilt thou be made whole? This question seems odd at first. You know, if it was me laying there at the pool and someone came, do you want to be healed? Of course, the answer is, of course, yes, I want to be healed. But throughout the passage and throughout the way Jesus asked the question, there is this, this hint of doubt here. 
about whether he wants to be made whole or not. Especially it seems odd to us if we are, if we're a healthy person. We're going to think immediately, of course. But if you've been suffering with disease or with troubles or discouragement for 38 years, it it plays in your mind and perhaps the discouragement and the helplessness of his life to this point has changed his outlook where he says, look, it just doesn't matter anymore. This is who I am. I'm just going to be here and I will die like this. Perhaps that explains why I find him so irritating is he's just given in, given up to his circumstances. But it's interesting, isn't it? And this is part of what uh, what brings it on is Jesus asked him, do you want to be made whole in verse 6? And in verse 7, he just gives a whole bunch of excuses. He doesn't answer the question. We don't ever see him anywhere say to Jesus, yes, I want to be made whole. All we get is excuses. Oh, I've been here 38 years. Nobody will take me in. Nobody will drag me down there. And when I do try and get down there, somebody else gets in first. Never me. Always somebody else. Nobody loves me enough to throw me in. Just me. So he doesn't answer. He just gives Jesus a whole bunch of excuses about why. He sits there. Seems to be doubt in this whole conversation if he actually wants to be healed. Perhaps he's become comfortable in this as his way of living. He could have made a living this way and receiving alms from people and, and gifts as he lay there. I suspect there's probably a good reason why he has no friends that will drag him down there. But that's just me reading into the text there. But Jesus finds this man and he speaks a miracle. We see another demonstration of the power of Jesus. Like the nobleman we saw at the end of chapter 4, all it took for Jesus to heal this man was a word. No touch, no fancy display, just a word. Get up and walk. That was all it took from him. And this word brought immediate healing. His power, the power of Jesus is absolute over life and over all things. But John uh, 5 verse 14 tells us that this, this is a miracle which is about more than just physical healing. So in verse 14, we see Jesus afterwards meet him in the temple. And Jesus says to him, behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So that tells us Jesus is seeing in this circumstance not just a healing physically, but there's something deeper here. There's something more important here Jesus is aiming at. Now, not all sickness is a result of personal sin. And that's not what Jesus is saying here, and that's not what this is about. This isn't about that if you sin, you will definitely have uh, some sort of illness or sickness. That's not true. Sometimes it is, but not always. Everything about this man shows us the effect of sin. In this man, we see how sin infiltrates and ruins every part of us. Sin has ruined this man physically. Sin has ruined this man emotionally. Sin has ruined this man spiritually. In this man, we see the effects of sin in every area of our life. 
his body is deformed. His mind is mired in self-pity and depression. And his spirit is devoid of eternal concern. Sickness is perhaps the most obvious expression of sin. It's how we see the effects of sin most clearly in this world through sickness and disease. So in healing here, Jesus is showing that he has the power to subdue sin and its effects. He has the power over every part of sin, which so drastically destroys this world. But notice also here, as we have in other places, that when Jesus heals this man, he does not demand belief or faith. So he doesn't say to the man, if you believe enough, you'll walk. Or if you believe me for salvation, you can be healed. There's no expectation on this man of belief in Jesus. And yet he is healed fully. In fact, the whole interaction from beginning to end seems to suggest a complete lack of belief in Jesus. That he never intends to believe Jesus as Savior or Messiah. We want to believe good things about this man. We really do. and Certainly, I, I do. Because you want to see things, but, but at every turn, our hopes of goodness in him seem to be dashed. He turns on us. You know, John tells us at the end in, in John 20, verse 30, that Jesus did many, many miracles, more than can be written down in a book. And he healed many, many people. Yet after the resurrection... When the believers are gathered, there's only 120 of them. After all of the miracles Jesus did, after all of the people that Jesus healed, there are only 120 believers gathered for worship. Bethesda, where we meet this man, means house of mercy. And that's exactly what Jesus shows here. Mercy. He shows mercy on this man, despite the fact that he will never believe him, at least that we're aware of. But not only do we see an unlovable man here, we also see an unloving people. Verse 9 says, and immediately the man was made whole, he took up his bed and walked, and on the same day was a Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, it's the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is this that said unto thee, Take up your bed and walk? Here's the subject of the conflict. A Sabbath law-breaking. Jesus did this on the Sabbath on purpose. There was a reason he did it this way. It was to expose, at least in part, the character of the Jewish leaders. This becomes the catalyst for them to seek his death. These were people who were spiritually superficial. Now, the Old Testament does indeed lay out some rules for how to work and what can and can't be done on the Sabbath. Those rules and those laws that were given were in regards to, in regards to occupational work, predominantly. But the, Jews, the Jews had made extreme additions, and it began with good intentions. There is no doubt that the extra laws and the extra rules began with good intentions, but soon got carried away. The ridiculousness of the laws that had come is legendary. 
You just have to Google Jewish laws on the Sabbath and you'll see some of the most ridiculous things you have ever heard of as rules for what you could and could not do. But not only are these rules ridiculously legendary, their hypocrisy is just as legendary. Because while there were so many rules, these leaders also knew all of the loopholes to avoid the rules. They could get away with pretty much anything they wanted. But this whole event that takes place is about Jesus declaring his authority over all things. To declare that he is ruler over all things. By healing, he declares that he has authority over sin. By healing on the Sabbath, he declares himself Lord of the Sabbath. All their laws had ruined the purpose of the Sabbath. So Jesus confronts them with his authority to show that the Sabbath is for the glory of God and for the good of people. They were self-absorbed in their religion to the point where they were only concerned about their traditions. What was it when they see this man that these Jewish leaders were concerned about? A man carrying his bed. That's what they were concerned about. They were completely, completely unconcerned that he had been healed. Now, he was no stranger. He's been there for 38 years. Everybody knows he's there. They didn't care. They did not care that this man was now walking, who for 38 years hadn't been able to walk. All they cared about was this man who used to couldn't carry his bed is now carrying his bed on the Sabbath. And that's what got them angry. That's what upset them. This is legalism. They are so concerned about keeping the law, their heart was completely empty of mercy and grace. Outward, superficial religion. It's easy to fall into that trap and it's devastatingly ruinous. And the same trap can easily befall us when we focus on our external religion. And when we do, it drives out compassion and it feeds pride. They cared little for people. Despite all their religion, they didn't care about the actual people. The interaction that happens in verse 10 and 11 is entertaining, isn't it? So the Jews see this man. Hey, you can't carry your bed today. It's the Sabbath. And the man replies, well, the guy who made me walk said I could carry my bed. Who told you that? You can't do that. It seems ridiculous, doesn't it? What? If it was me, what? Somebody told you you could walk and you just walked? But no, they're not worried about that. He can't tell you that. He has no authority to tell you you can walk on the Sabbath and carry your bed. In their zeal to keep the law, they'd forgotten what it was about, to love God and to love their neighbor. And this is where we see, in the midst of all of this unloving nature and unlovable people and and men, we see an unequaled Savior, a Savior who is full of grace and mercy. Compassion is in God's nature. What what bothers me most about this guy? I've told you I find him irritating. But what is it that bothers me most about this guy? I'll tell you what bothers me most about this guy. Is God's concerned about him. That bothers me. That God was so concerned with this unlovable, 
cantankerous, annoying, irritating man with no friends and, and no hope for life, and God loved him enough to show mercy on him. In fact, what we find is after Jesus heals him and the man goes away, Jesus actually goes to look for him, to follow up with him and to give him further warning and further instruction. And after everything that Jesus does for him, Jesus heals him from his disease for 38 years so he can walk and he can go about. And then after he finds him in the temple and gives him warning to say, look, beware of what is ahead for you. After all of that, the man still turns on Jesus and turns him into the authorities. Stabs him in the back. Man, he's not a nice guy, but Jesus doesn't seem to care. He still showed mercy. He healed this man who was never going to believe. Jesus shows compassion even though this guy mistreats him. Why did Jesus heal him knowing he wouldn't believe? Knowing that he wouldn't turn to him? Be honest, that is deeply convicting to me. That Jesus would do this, knowing what kind of man this was, knowing that even after doing all of this and showing all of this mercy on him, he still would not believe. What does that say about my attitude to unloving people around me? It's certainly convicting. Jesus, we see in verse 14, after he heals him and he goes goes into the temple and finds him. He looks for him in the temple. You would hope, and even as we're going through, you would, you would hope that when he finds him in the temple, that we're going to find him worshipping. It doesn't seem like that's the case. You know, when people get saved through, through miracles, Jesus usually says something along the lines of, your sins are forgiven or your faith has made you whole. And those statements usually indicate to us that there was a favorable response to Jesus based on what had happened there. But here, Jesus doesn't say anything like that. Your sins are forgiven or your faith has made you whole. No, unusually, Jesus says, don't sin unless something worse happens. It's true, as I said, sometimes disease does result or is the result of sin. We see it in David's life. We see it in the Corinthians and many other places. But this isn't what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, be careful or you'll be paralyzed again. He says, don't sin in case something worse. What's worse than being paralyzed and helpless for 38 years? Death death and hell. Jesus is still showing this man mercy, warning him, don't reject me because worse will come. His long-suffering mercy is an undeserved gift. Romans 2 Tells us, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. 
Jesus seeks us in our sin, just as he seeks this man in sin. The man, unfortunately, doesn't seem to hear or heed the warning of Jesus. In fact, what he does, Jesus gives him the warning. He turns around from Jesus and he goes to the Jewish leaders and he says, that's the guy who made me break the law. He turns him in. Now, he knew exactly why the Jews wanted him because he had just been berated by those same people for carrying his bed. He knew what they were going to do. This was not an innocent mistake. This was deliberate. The goodness to lead us to repentance, God, but to do that, to lead us to repentance, part of his goodness is to expose our sin, see who we are. It exposes God's goodness, exposes our lack of goodness. Many Many reject Jesus because he exposes us to our own sin. We have to see how we look before God. For others, it's expressed as a matter of authority like the leaders. Nobody can tell me how to live. Nobody can have authority over me. I'm the boss of my life. Not you, not anybody else, not this Jesus guy, not this Bible. I'm the boss. And if he wants to be the boss, he can't be. See, not everyone is going to respond favorably to Jesus. God shows you grace and mercy no matter what you think of him. But like this man, we all have, to fit in the context of our discussion here, a disease, sin which ruins us. Like this man, sin ruins us physically. Disease and suffering and sadness, it ruins us emotionally and it ruins us spiritually. Just like this man, sin drives us to despair without hope and without help. But in God's mercy, he provides healing and he provides hope and he provides life even to people that will despise him. He patiently, patiently warns us that without him we are helpless and we are doomed. Jesus, as he warns and as he shows us this mercy and grace, shows us that he has power over sin and power over the effects of sin, including death. There is nothing in sin that he does not have power over. So this morning, if you have not believed Jesus as your Savior, this morning I am pleading with you, please don't be like this man. Don't reject the mercy of God in your life. Don't let empty religion and self-righteousness push out the love of God and distract you from what is true and right and good. Believe Jesus, and he will give healing and hope and life. Now, believer, the challenge comes to us just as much as anyone else. What do you see when you look at people? 
When you look out at this world and the people around you, what do you see? Jesus showed mercy and compassion to a man that took advantage of his goodness. To a man that rejected him and rejected his warnings. Loving the loving is easy. Loving the unlovable, that's an act of God. Fortunately for us, we have the spirit within who we're told is pouring the love of God into our hearts so that we, in turn, can show the love of God to those around us. God enables us to see the world as God sees it, to be loving even to the unlovable. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Sometimes it is magnificent and glorious in our eyes, and sometimes it's painful and irritating. And today, there is no doubt that for me, it has certainly been painful and irritating. But I won't be like the man and reject your warnings. I pray that for all of us here, that we will heed the warnings you give to show your love to this world. And dear God, even if there's some in here this morning, perhaps blinded by their religiousness or their self-righteousness or their, their hope of life in doing the right thing or those who have no idea who Jesus has been and living in in open rebellion no matter where we are on that scale Lord may you open their eyes to see your goodness and that it might lead them to repentance and find joy and hope and healing in you we thank you dear God for your work and your word in Jesus name Amen